Hello and welcome back to Chronicle, the history of Newcastle United. I'm Matt Ketchell, football fan and engagement editor at Chronicle Live, and we've reached the mid-1970s in our historic walk through the entire 140-year history of Newcastle United. Prior warning, listeners, a lot went on in this period, and not all of it is very good. So strap in for the next half an hour or so as we cover it with Paul Joannou, the club's official historian, of course, and another special guest. I know this is the Everything is Black and White podcast, but... Uh, Underline how inclusive we are, our special guest this week is Rob Mason, whose allegiances lie across the Tyne in Wearside and are more red and white than black and white. Rob, a warm welcome to the show. Before we get into the episode, can you give our listeners a little bit of a background on yourself and your interest in well, northeast football history? For, thank you very much for, for asking me. Um, I've got When you say my allegiances are more red and white than black and white, I have to say they're entirely red and white. <laughs> um, I am Sunderland's equivalent to Paul. Not that I'm as good as Paul, but you know, I, I'm not just saying that. I, I look up to him a lot. He's a big inspiration. But I try and get as near to Paul's standards as I can in what I do at Sunderland. I first saw Sunderland play in February 1967. They won 7-1, and I thought it was like that every week. Obviously, I was mistaken. I've worked on the programme at Sunderland since 1986. I was full-time at the club from 2000 to 2017. And I did used to watch Newcastle and Hartlepool and very occasionally Middlesbrough in midweek games if there was no Sunderland clash. I no longer do. I live up in Scotland now and I travel down to all of Sunderland's games, but uh, I'm no longer on Wearside where it's just easy to pop up to St James's Park or down to Hartlepool. And my brother even used to train with Newcastle uh, as a goalkeeper. He was the sort of county goalkeeper, um, but he was sent home from Newcastle for turning up for training one day in a Sunderland top the week after Gary Rowell's hat-trick in the period we're going to talk about today. Obviously, it wasn't the cleverest thing to do, but he was only 15. Oh, dear. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, what is it with uh, club historians moving to Scotland? Paul's up in Scotland as well. Is, is that where you all hang out? <laughs> yeah, well, maybe, yes. It's, get away from the limelight of uh, Tynan. Yeah, yeah. Well, of course, Sunderland were founded by a Scotsman and have got a very proud Scottish history. That's not the reason I moved to Scotland. That's uh, just a coincidence. But uh, as, as Paul finds where, where he is in Edinburgh and where I find... Myself in southwest Scotland, you know, it's not too far to travel down to the northeast. And uh, yeah, you know, I, you will normally find me at, uh, at every Sunderland home game. I'm sure, I'm sure. So, Paul, um, we'll continue on. This episode covers a six year period in Newcastle United history, and during which time they jump on the managerial roundabout a bit, don't they? Uh, yes, United would have uh, no fewer than four managers in charge during this spell uh, and life after Supermac, he, he departed, if, if you remember, uh, started well. Gordon Lee, the, the new manager, unveiled a, a, a new look side uh, with the tricky Mickey Burns taking over the number nine shirt and he scored 17 goals. The lineup uh, was generally Mick Mahoney in goal, uh, defence of Alan Kennedy, McCaffrey, Nulty and Natras, midfield of Cassidy, Tommy Craig, Barraclough, uh, and up front, Burns gowling with local Heaton lad Paul Cannell often finding a place too, with Mickey Burns pushed back into midfield as a deep-lying centre-forward. And that formula clicked. Uh, United qualified for Europe, ending in fifth position, uh, and were, in fact, in third spot for a, for a considerable period. Mm, very good. 
Now, Rob, Alan Kennedy, a Sunderland mm-hmm. lad, established yeah. himself as a Newcastle player, then obviously going on to achieve greatness with Liverpool. He did play over 50 games for Sunderland in the twilight of his career, but how was Alan viewed on WSI? Well, um, it was good to have him. You know, he was, as you say, he was a Sunderland lad. There was, as I remember, there was absolutely no animosity at all about him being an ex-Newcastle player just as there wasn't when, say, Pop Robson came to Sunderland, another Sunderland lad who started at Newcastle. Alan Kennedy didn't do particularly well at Sunderland, barring one well-remembered game against Carlisle when he scored two goals, including an absolute screamer at the Fulwell end. But he just looked... He was obviously a great player in his time at Liverpool and, I think, as a young lad at Newcastle. But when he came to Sunderland, he was basically just past it. And he was just another one of Laurie McMenemy's big-name acquisitions that didn't work out. A few years ago... I met up with Alan Kennedy at, at Liverpool. I worked with the Liverpool historian, a bloke called Stephen Dorn, to put up a headstone to Tom Watson, who Paul will know has a, a big history at Newcastle. He was the Sunderland manager who led Sunderland to three league titles in the, in the 1890s and then went to Liverpool to become Liverpool's first ever championship winning manager. And he didn't have a headstone. So back in May... 2015 on what was actually the centenary of his death I would travel down to Liverpool with Jim Montgomery as Sunderland's ambassador because Sunderland and Liverpool had worked together to put up a, a headstone and paid for it between us to go up there and Liverpool were going to send along Ian Rush as their club ambassador and with all respect to Ian Rush obviously a fantastic player and a fantastic goal scorer and somebody else who if I remember rightly had a spell on Tyneside I got in touch with Liverpool and said with all due respect to Ian Rush could you get Alan Kennedy to come along he's another one of your club ambassadors and obviously being Sunderland born and the scorer of the winning goal in two European Cup finals for Liverpool one in a penalty shootout one from open play he would be the ideal person so he came along to that and I remember spending, we went back to Liverpool afterwards for a cup of tea and a bite to eat. And um, from Anfield Cemetery, where the gravestone was, by the way. And I remember talking to Alan Kennedy for a good couple of hours, mainly about his reminiscences of playing for Sunderland. And he was pleased to have played for Sunderland. Obviously, you know, it was his boyhood team. He was, you know, where he was from. But uh, clearly it was a, a footnote in a career that started fabulously at Newcastle and then reached the heights at Liverpool. Yeah, that's brilliant what he did for Tom Watson, who we did mention, I think, in, in, in our first or second episode of Chronicle. Uh, it's fantastic that you, that you yeah. were able to do that. And I don't think Newcastle or Sunderland saw the best of Alan Kennedy, if, if we're being honest. Well, <laughs> uh, well, well at, New, at Newcastle, he was very good. As, as uh, yeah. Rob said, he was a young lad then, but he burst yeah. onto the scene in um, 1974. And uh, yeah. two or three seasons before he went to Liverpool, he was uh, fabulous at left-back. Liverpool no. wouldn't have signed him if he hadn't been doing well at Newcastle. That's true. Yeah. Sorry, sorry, Alan, I've done you a disservice there. I did meet Alan myself actually before <laughs> yeah. the uh, 2019 Champions League final in Madrid, and he was he was very nice and did did a picture with me. So, yeah, another just... another one who's, who's crossed crossed the uh, the time to play for both mm-hmm. clubs. Paul, um, everything seems to be going all right then uh, for Newcastle, finishing fifth in the league. But if we've learned anything on this podcast, the journey through the 140 year history, it's that a bump in the road is. Never far away for the club, is it? Yes, uh, controversy uh, wasn't far away back then. Um, Gordon Lee shocked everybody, really, and he sold himself to Everton uh, during January 1977, uh, walking out on United. 
and it was left for his assistant, Richard Dennis, who was more a school teacher uh, than, than a football coach, really, uh, and he never played football at any high level. Uh, he took charge somewhat after a player revolt forced the director's hand. That season also saw a couple of keenly fought uh, Tainwea derby matches uh, in the top flight. Over 50,000 saw United win 2-0 at St James's Park, then draw 2-2 on Wearside. Uh, Sunderland uh, were on their way down, unfortunately. They were relegated that season, yet the Magpies were to soon follow them into the second tier. Oh dear. Rob, anything to add on, on that from a Sunderland perspective on, on those derby games? I mean, Tyne Weir derbies are intense enough as it is, but when one side's challenging for Europe and another's vying to stay in the league, I imagine that adds a bit of spice to the occasion. Well, whichever way around it is in terms of which team's doing well and which team isn't when a derby comes around, I, I mainly subscribe to the cliche that, if, that form goes out of the window when it comes to derby matches. Having said that, the away game at St James's, I remember... Sunderland were completely under the cosh and were lucky to just lose 2-0. Uh, the reason we only lost 2-0 was because of outstanding performances from Jim Holton and Jeff Clark. Obviously, Jeff later went on to do really well at Newcastle. Um, but Jim Holton and Jeff Clark were absolutely outstanding in central defence for Sunderland that day. Otherwise, it would have been 5 or 6, not 2-0. Um, and that was, from a Sunderland point of view, that was the fourth game in what was a uh, one of those club records that Sunderland have got that we'd rather not have. It was a club record of 10 games where we didn't even score, uh, let alone win a game. Uh, so confidence was already at a very low ebb. And you were mentioning Alan Kennedy there. If I remember rightly, I think Alan Kennedy scored the second goal on that particular day. Um, in contrast, when the home game came around, the lads were enjoying a tremendous revival. Uh, powered by Charlie's Angels. Now, Paul's old enough, and you're probably not mad to remember Charlie's Angels, the television programme. <laughs> but we had three young players who came into the team. One of them a big Newcastle supporter called Kevin Arnett. The other two being Gary Rowell and Sean Elliott. They were all discovered by the famous scout Charlie Ferguson, who basically did for Sunderland what Jack Hickson has done for Newcastle. And um, they were absolutely fantastic. And uh, when Newcastle came to, to Roker Park at Easter, uh, Kevin Arnott scored one of the best goals I've ever seen in a derby match. But when Jermaine Defoe scored that great volley from our point of view, not yours, uh, not too many years ago, people were saying that's the best goal I've ever seen in a derby game. And I was saying, well, it was a great goal and it was a winner. But the Kevin Arnott goal for me was probably the best goal I've seen from a Sunderland point of view in a derby game. But it finished 2-2. And I always felt that if Sunderland were very, very lucky to only lose 2-0 at St James's Park at Christmas... We were unlucky to only draw 2-2 at Roper Park at Easter. Fair enough. Now, Paul, uh, it's a good opportunity to interject with a, a listener question we've had in, which is about Tainwea derbies. Um, Anthony has asked about the rivalries. He says, it sounds like they were friendly, almost cordial encounters with Sunderland in the early 1900s. When did it start to change and become acrimonious? Well, I don't think I'd agree they were, they were cordial in the in the late 1890s and, and 1900s. Um, Excuse me, neither uh, would have been. That's why I am laughing. I know Paul yeah. as well as I do. Yeah, go on. Yeah, there's re reading lots of the reports. Uh, the, 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 there wasn't a great friendly rivalry, I don't think, uh, when when it came round to the, to the football match. Yes, Newcastle and Sunderland fans, away from the game, always got on, had a good chat and, and friendly banter. But certainly um, it was quite fierce at the, at the grounds, uh, both in 
Newcastle and Sunderland. And of course, there was the famous Good Friday riot in 1901 uh, when a reported crowd of around 50 to 70,000 congregated uh, to St James's Park at a time when it only held about 35,000 and the game never never started. It was abandoned before a kickoff and and uh, a complete and utter riot, a real riot uh, uh, ensued uh, that afternoon. So, um, and there was various reports um, during the 1900s of, of fights and battles and uh, that continued through uh, right, unfortunately, up to the current day. You know, but as I say, uh, you know, the, away from the actual match, you know, people do get on in, in, in the, the razor-friendly rivalry. We'll have a good laugh together with each other's uh, club's fortunes. And, and uh, uh, I think that's the way it is. Uh, the two clubs, latterly, could certainly uh, start to be a bit more cordial to each other. I think that, that's been a, a bit of a failure in the last 10 to 20 years. They've never got on together at a at a high corporate level. Um, and I think that probably needs to change going forward. Yeah. Do you agree, Rob? Absolutely. There's, there's nobody enjoys a bit of Sunderland and Newcastle banter more than me and a bit of a wind-up more than me, you know. But that's as far as it should go. And we've always got to remember that, you know, we, we look at how poor the success rate has been in northeast football in our lifetimes. It's, it's abysmal considering how much the, the, the teams mean to the two sets of supporters. And you look over the Pennines, you look at not just one city, but two in terms of Liverpool and Manchester, and look at the vast successes that not just one of their clubs has had, but both of their clubs have had. Or you look you know, other parts of the country who've had fantastic success and think there's been nothing in Sunderland and Newcastle for nigh on half a century. It, it's abysmal. So I always think that when Newcastle are doing well, Sooner or later, Sunderland will do well and vice versa. But when we're both doing badly, well, there's not perhaps the motivation for either club to say we need to pull our socks up and book our ideas up here. I agree with Paul that the relations between the two clubs at a high level have not been great in recent years. In contrast, I'm not sure about Newcastle's relationship with Middlesbrough, but Sunderland's relationship with Middlesbrough in the higher echelons of the club has, has been very good, hopefully, in the years to come. Uh, while the rivalry will always be there, the, the clubs at a high level can get on together. Yeah. And I, I'm sure Paul knows, and I certainly know still, of a handful of people who even now have got season tickets at both grounds and will support them, you know, from the generation when lots of people had season tickets at both grounds. I think that was mainly in the era before it was so easy to get to away games all the time. And lots of people just went to both teams and they would have their favourites, whether that was Newcastle or Sunderland, depending on where they were from. But there was yeah. still the other team to do well. Yeah, and that, that, that's, that's, that's right, uh, Rob. Yeah, the, 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 the still is a handful of got season tickets that I know, and, and, but it was in the, in the 60s and 70s and 80s, yeah. I suppose, uh, a lot more. And, and some fans did really support both clubs. Um, however, a lot of them... You know, me included, when I didn't go to a Newcastle away game in the 70s or 80s, uh, I used to go to Roker Park mm-hmm. and stand in the, in the paddock or the, or the full end or whatever and, and uh, chuckle away when, uh, when the opposition scored two or three goals against Sunderland. It was great. Yeah, well, it was a great, a great day out. Yeah, well, absolutely. I, I mentioned earlier I'd come along to watch Newcastle. I never said I'd be wanting Newcastle to win. But I'd come oh. along and watch, you know. Um, <laughs> but there wasn't the... <laughs> There wasn't the sort of nastiness 
about it that Matt's talking about. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm in your files at the Evening Chronicle, you will have the Evening Chronicle of May the 7th, 1973, which is the Monday night after Sunderland won the FA Cup. And the Evening Chronicle in those days was a big broadsheet newspaper. And I've got a copy in my files of the Evening Chronicle of May the 7th, 1973. And the banner headline on the front page says, we've won because Sunderland won the FA Cup. I wouldn't expect the Sunderland Echo to say, we've won if Newcastle won the FA Cup this season. And I wouldn't expect the Evening Chronicle to say, we've won if Sunderland won a cup this season. Mm, and we did yeah. win a cup last season, even though it was one we didn't want to be in. And yeah. we do have a decent run going on in the League Cup at the minute. So yeah. I don't think Sunderland's going to win a cup. It's not cups we're interested in. But the point is, I can't imagine now one of the regional newspapers saying, we've won, when the team from the neighbouring town or city have won a trophy because it wouldn't sit so well with their readers. But clearly in 1973, the editor of the Evening Chronicle felt it would sit well with the readers, say we've won when Sunderland had brought the FA Cup to the North East. Interesting. We'll have to dig that one out. Mm. Paul, the um, the head-to-head between both clubs is, is very interesting. Hundreds of games, and it's extremely close, isn't it? It is. Um, the two clubs have so far recorded 154 senior League and Cup meetings with many more in sundry other fixtures. Um, and the stats uh, show that United have won 53, Sunderland 52 uh, with 49 draws. Even the goals are close. Uh, Newcastle 2-2-3 and Sunderland 2-2-8. You know, that's uh, pretty good going after all these years. Um, yeah. But during the late 70s and early 80s, both clubs went through difficult periods. Yeah, absolutely. And actually, I've done a, a bit of research on this. At, at the time of recording this series, Newcastle and, and Sunderland haven't met in the League or Cup since they drew 1-1 at St James's Park on the 20th of March 2016. The earliest they could possibly meet again would be in the FA Cup early rounds at the start of 2022. If that doesn't happen, this break in Tyneweir derbies will be the second longest in both clubs' histories. The longest one, uh, I've been having a look, was 14 years, 7 months, from the 3rd of March 1934 to the 9th of October 1948. Of course, mitigate circumstances, the Second World War uh, was uh, going on for six of those years. But very interesting that the gap is is is, is soon to be the, the second longest in the history. Yeah, well, I didn't know that. So uh, I doubt we'll get drawn in the FA Cup, but you never know. <laughs> Well, we might not yeah. be able if we get knocked out in the first or second round. So. Yeah, very, very true, yeah. <laughs> Which, to be honest, would suit me. I've got my promotion blinkers on. It's all I'm interested in. Yes. Yeah. Fair yeah. enough. Priorities. Back back to domestic issues then, uh, Rob, as you've segued there. Mm-hmm. Uh, Paul, we, we finished fifth in, in 1977, as you, as you um, pointed out. We must have gone into 77, 78 full of hope, but, of course, should have known better, really, shouldn't we? Uh, absolutely. Um, with Richard Dennis in charge for the new season, again with the player support, but n- but not that, that of the board. Uh, there was very nearly a change during the summer again. But United started with a victory at Leeds, and that was very good. Uh, however, they went on a terrible run after that. They lost the next 10 league games and were destined for a relegation battle. Uh, the Magpies did return to European competition, though, in that, in that period uh, in the UEFA Cup. Uh, they comfortably went through against Dublin uh, side Bohemians, then met one of Europe's best outfits at the time, a club called Bastia from Corsica, and United lost both legs. 
they were outclassed uh, by the likes of the Dutch ace Johnny Rep, who was uh, uh, one of the world's best at that time. Mm. And, and how did things play out for Richard Dennis and the board then, with results failing to materialise? Well, it was no surprise uh, after that uh, awful run that Dennis was sacked and a hardliner took the manager, manager's chair, ex-England player and a successful past uh, manager of uh, Wolves, Bill McGarry. He was brought in to sort out the problem dressing room uh, and hopefully steer the club uh, from relegation. Uh, but a drop back into Tier 2 was inevitable, really, and United slipped down with hardly a fight. Oh dear. Um, I think attendances are always a, a good indication of the, the health of a club, particularly you know pre-millennium. That, that, that's always a, a good sign of, of how a club is performing. What did these this drop in performance do to results in attendances at the club, Paul? Well, Newcastle's attendances, just like Sunderland at the time, were, were always very good. You know, the 40s, 50s, 60s and 70s were, were tremendous in terms of crowds. Uh, however, at this point, uh, Newcastle fans did not like the events of the last couple of years at all. And they stayed away, the, the average dropped, uh, and there was in fact only 7,986 uh, at the home game against Norwich uh, at the end of the season. And that supporter apathy... Uh, was even worse next season uh, when a low crowd of 7,134 uh, saw the game with Wrexham. Uh, and that's the lowest um, post-war attendance uh, at St James's Park for a league meeting. Um, you know, the averages were better than that, of course, much better, but uh, would never got to, to the likes of 7,000 for a league uh, game uh, uh, since the days of uh, before the turn of the, uh, the century. But... Support was terrific for other games. Uh, Blythe Spartans played an FA Cup match, a famous match at, at Gallagher, uh, also against Wrexham, who had knocked out Newcastle. And over 40,000 uh, saw the famous Spartans uh, just narrowly uh, be defeated. Mm. Yeah, very unlucky they were too, but we'll, we'll not get into that. That's for another podcast. So Newcastle are, are back in the second tier, Paul, the third time in their history. How long did the top tier exile last this time? Uh, well, it was uh, it would be a, a good few. Well, not not a good few seasons. About uh, what was it? About five seasons, I think. Uh, and there was a huge turnover in players at, at that point uh, over the period. Uh, the next two or three years, uh, as United struggled to get into the promotion place, you know, there, were, there were many new faces arrived. Terry Hibbert returned. That was uh, a good move. And uh, there were others like Mick Martin, Colin Suggett, an ex-Sunland uh, star, of course, John Blackley, Mark McGee, as well as John Brownlee, John Connolly, Jim Pearson, Noel Scotts, um, Stuart Boehm from Middlesbrough, uh, the famous Bobby Shinton, who starred with Manchester City, but not with us, uh, Billy Rafferty, and there was a record signing uh, of Peter With from Nottingham Forest, who was a, a top-class centre-forward. Maybe the best of the lot, though, came from the old route um, of the past, uh, from down the pits, uh, Alan Shoulder of Blythe Spartans. He scored many a goal in the, in the local leagues for Blythe, uh, and he w worked in the County Durham Coalfield and, and decided to turn professional with Newcastle. Mm, amazing. And how did the Tyne derbies go with both the North East clubs back in the same division? Well, not very well for Newcastle. Uh, there was a derby shock uh, for the Magpies in February 1979. Sunderland arrived uh, on Tyne's side and won 4-1. Uh, 
uh, with Gary Rowell, who uh, uh, Rob mentioned before, hit a, hit a, a well-remembered hat-trick. Uh, then at the start of the following 79-80 season, the two rivals were drawn together for a two-legged League Cup tie. And after a couple of feisty 2-2 draws, uh, Sunderland eventually won on penalties at St James's Park, 6-7. Uh, and the unfortunate Jim Pearson, uh, such a lovely lad off the field, uh, he missed a, a kick for United and sent Sunderland through. Mm. Rob, as much as I'd like to move on from, from that section of the podcast, it would be remiss of us not to allow you to talk a bit about those Sunderland wins. Well, yeah, I was I was at the 4-1. Um, it would have been more had John Bird not had Gary Rowell down when he was clean through in the days before it was an automatic red card. Gary Rowell's a very, very good friend of mine. As I speak to him frequently. And uh, I've talked to him about that match on numerous occasions. And he said that at 4-1, there was his, I won't swear I shall change Gary's language slightly, but he says at 4-1, there was a discussion on the pitch between him and some of the Sunderland players as to whether they were going to try and add to the score or take the mickey. And they decided to take the mickey. And as well as scoring his hat-trick in that game, it was Gary who put the foot, the, the other goal on a plate for Wayne Entwistle. Wayne Entwistle was a, a hard-working but limited centre-forward, who in later years, by the way, was working as a construction worker on Tyne Tunnel 2. There's a bit of irrelevant information. Yeah. Well, Gary Rowell chipped and floated over a centre for Wayne to head in from inches at the... Wherever the, wherever the open end was called at Newcastle. Is that the Gallagher end? Gallagher end, yeah. Gallagher end, yes, at that end. When it came to the... Um, the League Cup ties, they're the only, the two of them, they're the only derby matches in the last half century plus that I've not been at. And that was because I was a student in those days and I'd spent the summer working as a bin man. And having, been, having worked, worked the summer as a bin man, I decided to take my fiancé, now wife, on holiday. And I knew that the League Cup ties were missing. I thought, we'll get Lincoln City or somebody. And of course... We drew Newcastle and I was in France trying to find a radio that would pick up Radio 2 that in those days had the football scores on to get the scores. However, from a Sunderland point of view, of course, after a 2-2 draw and 7-6 on penalties, I always like to tell people, at least on Sunderland, at Sunderland, that it was the second time Sunderland had scored nine at Newcastle. I have to say, <laughs> uh, yes. I have to say of course, that uh, since then we've lost a lot more big games on penalties than we've won big games on penalties, as I'm sure. Newcastle will have done as well. Oh, we yeah. certainly have, yes. <laughs> uh -huh. yeah. Paul, was there any derby cheer for Newcastle fans during the, the period we're covering today? Well, there was. Newcastle got a bit of revenge um, winning a spectacular game 3-1 on New Year's Day when goals from Cartwright, Shoulder and a belter from Tommy Cassidy gave Newcastle a points. Uh, Sunderland, though, had the last laugh. United floundered in the promotion race uh, and the red and whites got promoted. So um, it wasn't all uh, rosy for for uh, black and white supporters uh, that season. Mm, yes, I think definitely time to move on. Uh, we've spoken at length about Joe Harvey in previous episodes of Chronicled and Paul, he was controversially moved upstairs in the mid-70s but did remain involved at the club and briefly found himself back in the dugout to help bridge the gap between McGarry and Arthur Cox, didn't he? Yeah, well, that, that's right. Um, seasons 80, 81 and 81, 2 wasn't, it was again a little surprise that, that McGarry was dismissed after after failing to get anywhere near the promotion race. Uh, and another new boss arrived, Chesterfield's manager, Arthur Cox, uh, who had been Bob Stoker's right-hand man at Sunderland 
when they lifted the FA Cup in 1973, uh, arrived as as manager, and uh, you know Stoku uh, was a great friend of Joe Harvey, uh, and uh, the two of them uh, remained friends uh, long after the playing days and into managerial periods and into retirement. Um, and Arthur Cox was uh, one of Bob Stoku's um, right hand man's men at Roker Park for a number of years. Yeah. Bob Stoko, Rob, he's, he's technically a Geordie, born in Mickley, Northumberland, but he's got the unique distinction of having that statue outside the Stadium of Light, thanks to his role in bringing the FA Cup back to Sunderland as manager in 1973. Can you tell us a little bit about Bob? Well, firstly, mentioning the statue, it's fair to say that, if I remember rightly, it was the Newcastle United Former Players Association who contributed financially towards the cost of that statue, recognising Bob's role at Tyneside. Uh, Bob's daughter, Karen, Still comes to most Sunderland home games, although she doesn't live in the area. And his cup final, his famous cup final Mac red tracksuit and trilby I've got on display in the in the foyer at the Stadium of Light. Bob was very, very proud, rightly, of being an FA Cup winner with Newcastle in 1955, when his direct opponent, as, as Bob was centre half for Newcastle, and Don Revy was centre forward for Manchester City. And of course, when the 73 Cup final came around, it was Bob Stoke versus. Don Revy in terms of the managerial stakes. And as I'm sure a lot of people will well know, and Paul will definitely know, there was no love lost between Stoko and Revy. And that stemmed largely from uh, an attempted bribe, Stoko said, that Revy tried to make when Bob was at Bury and uh, Revy was at Leeds. Um, Bob Stoko was dubbed the Messiah on Wearside. He took over a struggling team. Uh, he transformed them turned them around from a team that when he took over was sixth from bottom in the second division and went up to, uh, had there been playoffs in those days, Sunderland would have gone into the playoffs and, you know, the way they were playing and who they were beating, having beaten not only Leeds, who were the, you know, the biggest team around at the time, but also Arsenal in the semi-final, who'd, you know, been in the previous two cup finals and done the double in 71. Manchester City, who were the, who were the favourites for the cup in the fifth round. Sunderland would have almost certainly got promoted had they gone through the playoffs. Uh, just last week, I was at the memorial service for a chap called Lance Hardy, who was a very big, big personality when he worked at the BBC. And Lance famously wrote the book Stoke or Sunderland in 73, which is an excellent book chronicling that cup run and not just the games, but the social history of the North East and how it fitted in. And uh, when I was at Lance's memorial last week, Dave Watson, who was man of the match, in that cup final was there together with just about every BBC TV commentator past and present from Guy Mowbray to John Motson, you care to mention. And so that was a discussion that we all had just last week about, you know, what it, what it meant and how the chaps in the BBC were saying, as far as they were concerned, it was the greatest cup final ever. And, you know, there was some people who would argue for the Matthews final in 53, Although I think as North Easterners, we should rename that the Mortensen final, seeing as Shields-born Stan Mortensen actually scored a hat-trick. Yeah, well, I'd agree with you. Yeah. yeah. Coming back to Bob Stoke, uh, I think his greatest quality was his honesty. And Sir Bob Murray, who was at Lance's memorial last week, said to me when we were talking about Bob Stoke, that the clue, and of course it was Bob that brought Bob Stoke, Bob Murray that brought Bob Stoke back to Sunderland for his second brief stint. Uh, it was Bob Murray that said to me, that the clue to how great Bob Stoker was, was how many of the clubs he managed has had him as manager twice. 
Bury, Rochdale, Carlisle, Blackpool and Sunderland all had him as manager twice. Only at Charlton did he manage a club for just mm. one spell. And as a winner, both times, the Sunderland or Newcastle won a major trophy in England. I'm not forgetting the first cup. But the last time that Sunderland or Newcastle won a major trophy in England, Bob Stoker was a key part of both teams. He has to be regarded as a, as a giant of northeast football history, not just Sunderland, Newcastle's as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and from a Newcastle supporter uh, and, and historian, it's really tremendous to see a Newcastle favourite have a statue at, at the Stadium of Light. It's superb. Well, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, you, you, you've got to look at uh, down at Middlesbrough as well as George Hardwick, who managed Sunderland. Yeah. You know, there. And uh, yeah, Bob Stoke was a diet of football history. And obviously, he was black and white through and through, you know, from growing up and, yeah. and, and, and playing for the club. But uh, I think I think the way he is regarded on Sunderland should put to bed all arguments that you can't come from Newcastle and be a success on Sunderland and be popular in Sunderland. And equally, I think that applies vice versa. Mm -hmm. Well said. Well said, Rob. I love that trivia on Bob managing clubs twice. I wonder if there's ever been a manager who's managed as many clubs twice. So let us know. Get in touch with us if you, if you think there has been. But I would be surprised. There's almost half a dozen clubs there. Um, Paul, how did the landscape look at Newcastle United then as we enter the early 80s? The club seemed to be treading a lot of water in Division 2, not really toying with promotion or relegation when we look back on those league finishes. Well, they found it hard to get promotion, uh, get into a promotion run, uh, that's for certain. Uh, more new players landed at Gallagher. There was a huge turnover. Uh, Mick Harford, another, another Sunderland guy. Franz Conan from Holland, John Truick for a, a record fee again, uh, and Imri Berardi, who, like Alan Shoulder, was an excellent buy for two or three seasons for United. Uh, there was also a crop of youngsters to develop within, from within the club as well. Bruce Halliday, Peter Haddock, Wes Saunders, Neil MacDonald, Kenny Wharton, and uh, Chris Waddle, of course, who became in time a huge star. Uh, more on Waddler in our in our next episode. Uh, so apart from you know not getting into the promotion places, uh, there was a few good players uh, introduced into the side. Definitely, definitely. And the club by this stage, 1980, 1981, they're technically a hundred years old, but it started to lose a bit of its spark, hadn't it? Well, the, the yes, they were a hundred years old uh, after the club was founded in South Bike uh, way back in uh, 1881. And the 1981-82 season saw the Black and Whites financially in trouble and, and in need of something special. Your money was a real problem to the to the directors, um, and they just couldn't get uh, any momentum uh, to uh, get into a promotion uh, position. Uh, Newcastle United needed inspiration and maybe a helping hand from above. And that, of course, arrived during the summer of 1982 when everything changed and it was the first coming of a certain Kevin Keegan. Yes, wow. I think that's a, a pretty good note to end on. Um, that's the first proper mention of Kevin Keegan on our history podcast, definitely not the last. Rob, it's been great to have you as our guest today, Paul's Wearside counterpart. Any, anything to add before we wrap up this period of Newcastle history? Uh, no, thank you for asking me. And as I've sort of tried to say throughout, while, you know, I think red and white and black and white banter is always good sport, let's keep it at that. And, um, you know, when it comes to uh, people getting carried away and punching horses, you know, it's uh, it's not clever, it's not, it's not big. 
and uh, it's embarrassing for the whole region. And I think we always have to remember that whatever the differences are between Sunderland and Newcastle, we actually have a lot more in common that we have that divides us. And uh, we, sh you know, while we all want our team to do well, you know, I think there is a lot to be said for the northeast having some some sort of joint spirit given as i said earlier you look at the successes there's been in other parts of the country while there's been next to none worth mentioning in our lifetimes in uh, in northeast football although obviously historically this is paul's stock in trade and mine sunderland and newcastle have had their own golden eras on more than one occasion in the past hopefully there'll be more to come absolutely yeah thanks for that and thanks everyone for listening if you have any NUFC history stories observations facts stats memorabilia you name it you can email us the EIBW podcast at reachplc.com or you can tweet me I am at Ketchel on Twitter please subscribe to the Everything is Black and White podcast via whichever podcast platform you're listening to us on follow Chronicle Live's Newcastle United channels on social media we're at Chronicle NUFC on Twitter Facebook and Instagram please drop us a five star review on iTunes if you can as well that would be much appreciated and last one from me stay up to date with everything Black and White by subscribing to our daily Newcastle United newsletters these are free and the link to sign up to them will be in our show notes if you hit that and scroll down to sport Newcastle United updates select the box you'll be signed up to receive all the best NUFC content that we're producing here at Chronicle Live we're putting more and more of these out now with thousands and thousands of Toon fans subscribed so please join them and see what all the fuss is about thanks so much for listening to Chronicled the history of Newcastle United with me Matt Ketchell Paul Joanu, and our special guest Rob Mason <laughs>